0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Uh, we're here today for an episode of Crypto Stories with a uh, special guest, Jared Dicker, CEO of Poet. Jared, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Happy to be here.
0: Jared, yeah, can you give a brief background on yourself, what you're doing with Poet and, and what problems you're trying to solve?
1: Yeah. So I have been at Poet for about eight months now, um, which in crypto and blockchain years feels like a lot longer, especially with how things have changed and uh, how things have evolved. But I joined at the end of February, early March, coming from the Washington Post, where I was the innovation chief there, really in charge of focusing on new technologies, products and strategies that would help kind of better the overall media business. And that's been a somewhat common theme throughout my career. And what I've taken to Poet is that, It's dangerous to assume that anyone knows anything, and as it relates to media, that is extremely true. Uh, I learned that very quickly uh, early days when I was at um, the other post, at the Huffington Post, where we were thinking about new media models and came up with the concept for native advertising and then really started to rethink what web publishing means and do you even need a website and what should the relationship be like with a Facebook and Google, um, which we got somewhat wrong, because (laughs) as you can see now, if you uh, follow media, uh, there's a huge ownership issue, uh, both in terms of content ownership and IP ownership, but also uh, how media companies made money. And a lot of that value has gone to the platform. So my kind of focus and interest has always been around, right? How can we build a better economy for media even more broadly, right? How do we build a better economy for creators. Um, being a journalist myself in the early days, doing a lot of music journalism, I actually got into this business because I needed to make money. Right, I wasn't <laughs> making any money, even though I was getting noticed and doing a lot of cool things and interviewing a lot of great musicians and artists. Uh, it just wasn't a feasible occupation for me uh, as I was running. And I realized that there was a lot more opportunity, kind of on the business and technology side, in an area that really needed help. So. Poet is kind of the next step in that journey where I noticed more and more that there was a deeper struggle when it came to media company ownership and creator outlets and opportunities for creators. And mind you, when I say creators, we could be talking about journalists, we could be talking about musicians or or artists, but anyone who who has IP and puts value on that IP. But it just seemed like this was kind of coming to a culmination where there were some serious things to consider, right? Who who owns information and how should information be licensed and accessed and discovered? Who sets those rules and why are those rules set? And that kind of drew me closer and closer to Poet and this idea of decentralization and this idea of interoperability, which we'll get into, which I think is a huge component for what's happening in the media and creator space right now, which is how can you create in one place and take that value and reputation with you wherever you go, which is now somewhat owned by the platforms and the media channels themselves. Um, But what are the tools, you know, technically that we could build uh, that really start to open up a new ecosystem for the creator? And Poet is where we are trying to figure that out, you know, building, building that plane while in the air. But it's the place where I think we could figure it out because the underlying architecture and philosophies that it's built on is around openness and around individual ownership and individual IP. And again, at kind of a protocol level, being able to start building the horizontal layers that applications and people thinking more vertically can build upon can really start to open up some new opportunities and things that hopefully have never been tried or tested before.
0: Yeah. So, so success for poet. You know, if you if if you're successful, you will have you created an economy where journalists and creators will be able to make a living doing their work. That's basically the goal of the poet.
1: Yes. So on poet, and I have this discussion often. Right. Like if these if these decentralized protocols are successful, you're kind of out of business. Right. As a manager of the protocol, because the network itself manages the protocol and everyone else who is now participating in it. So our success can be going out of business in two years, right? So that it's kind of self-managed and network owned and we start to run and manage applications and services on the protocol. But yes, I mean, the, the main goal here is to really build tools and accessibility points for all creators, right? To be able to simply within their everyday workflow, right? Be able to start to manage and own Their information. So, for a journalist, right, that could be the articles they create. It could be the reputation behind those articles. So, where else have they authored and what is their background and what is their source philosophy and fact checking? For someone doing music, that could be where they're being streamed or who their record label is and what company is best representing them and where they're booked. But really start to be able to build this open ledger, right, for information that's tied directly back to those creators so that hopefully right the information and all of the works that are being put on poet could either be taken and used right for existing platforms like Google and Facebook or other places where people discover right art or information uh, to be able to use right this notion of reputation and ownership to help those algorithms or which I think many of us in the space um and how a lot of us are thinking is what are the new applications going to be built on, right? What are the new ways where you will discover uh, journalism art, right? What is the future of the media company? And we want to be able to provide kind of the base layers for those new um, media economies, right? Whether that is for journalism or maybe image licensing and sharing. But again, kind of all boiling down to that central theme of, People seeing value of doing it here because they could build reputation against themselves as an individual and not necessarily have to give their IP or too much ownership away early
0: on. Yeah. So my sort of very high level view of what's happened in, in journalism, you use something we think of it is basically that, you know, especially local newspapers used to sort of have a uh, monopoly is not the right word, but like you know, something like a monopoly on both content and distribution in terms of you know, the only way people could, or the best way for people to get educated in what's happening in their town, you know, pre-internet was to read the local newspaper and the best way for advertisers, or if not the only way to reach local local audience was via, was also via local newspaper and that the internet sort of shattered both of those, both of those things. And and then also combined with everybody becoming their own a curator or a journalist or blogger mm-hmm. and forcing us to question, what's what's the real market value mm-hmm. For, for these creators. And so I, I think the response has been things like Patreon and Stratechery where it's, you know, subscription-based content models and those things don't, don't involve the blockchain or don't need a blockchain. So my question to you is where am I incorrect or incomplete rather in my, um, you know, assessment of, of what's happened in, in, in journalism and news and to why, why do we need the blockchain for this?
1: Yeah. So you are pretty right on. I mean, when you think of the role of a media company and, the control that they had right they they managed the factories where paper was printed right to then be distributed to the homes and they not only kind of controlled the process both operationally right from how the media was created to being able to own all the different elements of that process but they kind of also owned the narrative right and they really were able to shift society people depended on their local newspaper or a single point of information in order to come to some sort of consensus or understanding about what's happening in their town or city, and then kind of a couple different vantage points to what's happening around the world. And that all blew up. I mean, that absolutely blew up with the web and what happens oftentimes, and you've kind of seen it with what's happening on the financial side of things as it applies to, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, but you're seeing it on the media side as well. Is that when these institutions are so mature, even though they know that they need to move forward, right, they still need to satisfy and kind of abide by legacy commitments, right, or things that kind of just have to be done because that's just the way that the business works. So when you look at companies like the New York Times and, and the Post, right, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, who are now still pretty successful, a lot has to do with probably the political climate, but also the importance of information, right? And news in a world with misinformation, they still need to kind of accommodate, right? Their printing business and their legacy businesses and their existing reputation. And they can't really just start over. And what you've seen with Facebook, right? And Google and Snapchat and Apple News, and then these kind of new areas of monetization like Patreon, right? And tipping or bundles and subscriptions, kind of like what Cheddar and John Steinberg is doing, is that the newer media companies that have new investment and don't necessarily have too much legacy baggage can make bets, right? And not just make bets based on their content, but make bets based on their business. Like how can I best position my company for a world that is completely distributed and living on Facebook and Google, and not necessarily be distracted or held down by the way that we used to do things 20 years ago. And I think you've seen like a direct example of this with the post, right? The post pre-Bezos and post-Bezos and the post-Bezos post was a place that I was a part of an amazing place to be because we had the opportunity to be able to look forward and have the investment to make bets, right? And create new opportunities that could help sustain the existing business and our journalism but also build new opportunities for the next era of the web which for the post was becoming a software as a service business and creating our publishing and and red and other things where now the post is a huge business selling and licensing software to companies all over the world so when it comes down to like why blockchain Right. Which is the first question that I always get when I talk about these things. I think it's just really important to identify the root causes of what needs to be fixed, you know, rather than kind of just masking symptoms. And you, again, kind of see this today where people are saying, hey, you should pay for journalism. Right. Journalism is valuable. It costs money. And no one's really arguing that. But no one really knows what that means. And what's happened within media companies, you know, in particular, because they've been around for so long, is that the practices that they've worked within and have helped enable and helped evolve aren't things that the outside world necessarily knows. And and those could be things like how content is actually created, where the opinion section within a newsroom is completely separate from editorial. And that's something that if you work in news, you assume everyone knows. But if you talk to anybody outside of news, especially if you see reactions on Twitter, when certain articles are published and people are saying this is fake news, they don't know that that is an opinion article and not someone right who is writing that within the newsroom, that it is something from the outside. So where I think blockchain becomes extremely interesting as it applies to media and information and ownership is not necessarily how people are just getting paid, right? Because I agree with you there in the examples that you give with how Ben Thompson is making money and how others are making money, you're just basically replacing fiat with cryptocurrencies and and maybe anonymizing them so you're able to fund different news sources if you so choose. And if you do not want that to be public, like there are some (laughs) interesting use cases for it, but it is essentially the same thing, right? You you are paying for something as a one-to-one. And what I think is the most interesting application as it comes to blockchain is, well, how do we get to this root cause, right? How can we start to prove and show value in the work that we're doing, right? The, the kind of reasons and rationale behind why we say journalism matters and costs money and the work and things that go into it. And frankly, things that we can't quantify, right? Like media success today is traffic and page views and referrals and clicks and users and signups, all things that if you subscribe to the Washington Post, have no affiliation with why you subscribe to the post, right? Like I don't subscribe to the post because they have a hundred million new and they're now profitable and they went all in on Facebook Ginson, Right. I subscribe to the post because it's a news source that's curated by Marty Barron. Someone that I trust that has over a hundred years worth of reputation. Right. But those things aren't quantifiable yet. Those are the reasons why you read right, the Washington post. So blockchain introduces a new, kind of positioning and new value proposition for these media companies to basically flip the script, right? And not necessarily have to build within the confines of their current structure, but kind of knock down the foundations and really redefine the work that goes into this, right? And by using blockchain and the notion of immutability, right? And having a record, you're able to put all content and information, right, on the chain so that... It cannot be manipulated, changed, or go away. So that in itself is valuable, but that's not the core value. The core value is, now, how can you start using incentive mechanisms, right, or token mechanics to start making certain things verifiable, right? How can you start to really expose the work that's going into these sort of articles, right, or things created by media companies that should have the direct correlation with why someone would subscribe or an advertiser would pay or the reputation directly tied to it. And like, this is a huge thing that media companies already talk about when it comes to marketing. Like the New York times released the Donald Trump expose at the end of September. And their biggest thing is that they had three investigative reporters working on this for the past year and a half, which means that they invested a lot of money and a lot of work went into it. Yet that content is valued exactly the same as a viral video from Buzzfeed on Facebook, right? Even though that might've taken five minutes to create. So blockchain introduces this new mechanism of having everyone kind of recorded and cataloged on the same ledger immutably, right? That cannot be changed or shaken. And then really being able to build incentive mechanisms that could pull out this information so that people could really start seeing, right? What is valuable? How much work goes into something? Is this thing properly sourced, right? How can you start exposing the ingredients behind the information in which you're about to consume before you consume it? And this is the real power here and what really kind of changes the dynamic because then we're able to actually start to quantify, right, the efforts that go into a given work and the values that we keep saying, or why you should subscribe and why information is important and really start to expose those in a not fox guarding the henhouse approach, but a decentralized approach that really lets everyone see the same information and better understand exactly what goes into a given work. And again, it's something that I've been calling proof of effort because I think in media, it's always been, what are the end results? What are the proof of the results? which have been counterintuitive to why media should be paid for and why media is valuable. If we could start putting allocation and focus on the efforts, then we flip the script, and who knows what sort of economy could come out of that.
0: Yeah, and so is the idea that, you know, uh, writers will sort of receive sort of like royalties, or almost, for, for, for their work? Like, how will this work in practice?
1: Yeah. So we, we as a protocol, have a horizontal layer that allows anyone to be able to put this information right on the chain, and then be able to start making verifiable claims against that information that could be exposed. So we are building applications right now to make this easy for all creators to start leveraging. We have an API called the Frost API that's connected to WordPress and Drupal and Joomla and other creator tools we're building applications for adobe products right because creative ip could be what you create in InDesign or photoshop as well as microsoft tools and medium and twitter and so forth so really being able to build extensions and easy ways for people and creators to be able to leverage this and use this without going outside of their day-to-day workflow which i know from the past and working on technologies for creators for you know the past decade even if it makes complete sense, right? And something like this does make sense. It's you value your work, right? Your art and your IP is basically your money and you should secure it and value it. Even though that can make complete sense, if we make anyone go five minutes out of their way, right? They're not going to do it. (laughs) So the applications that we're building are really easy hooks in order for people to be able to do this within that existing workflow. There's other applications that we're building on top and talking to other partners about building on top, which is kind of like, what is the future marketplace, right? You want to go and purchase an article from someone or a piece of art from someone. How can we make sure that the person you are purchasing it from owns that information, right, or owns that art, or through provenance is the creator of that specific thing? How can we help? better facilitate what that transaction looks like and the rules behind that transaction, right? So we aren't experts in copyright. And again, being a protocol and not an application, we don't have to, but there's a lot of copyright technologies and companies that are speaking to us about how to best leverage the protocol to build the next phase of what they're doing on top of it. I think it gets really crazy. Like shit could go wild and I'm trying to push this out um, to see if anyone bites and people are interested in it but i but i haven't had anyone bite yet where this could get to the point where what if before you even put out a tweet you run it through poet right so you're able to kind of stamp this information through poet and you're able to kind of control through contracts right who could see it and how it could be used where now when you're on twitter and you're writing right original stories via tweet storms or you could even be like on the street and you see your favorite celebrity. So I'm a huge fan of the band Fish. So say I'm outside and I see Trey Anastasio, the lead singer of Fish, and I take a selfie with him and I put it on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, my God, check out this picture of me with Trey. All my friends will be like, that's great. That's great. And then maybe a bunch of music magazines like Rolling Stone and Relics may say, hey, Jared, do you mind if we use this? Today, I'd be like, sure. Right. Just use it. It's great. I'll be featured in Rolling Stone. If they were to run these things right through POED, they could say, sure, right, here's the contract, the same way that a paparazzi or anyone else would do it. And mind you, that does not happen today. And that may be completely idiotic. But when you look at all the new IP and information that is just being thrown out there, right, on Twitter and other places, if you are able to start managing and controlling how that is used, then again, maybe creating these new economies does open up the same way that if anyone wanted to license your work, it could really open it up. So I don't necessarily just think, I guess, to go full circle on your question, I don't just think that we need to build new marketplaces in order to do this. I think that being able to guarantee IP security and then being able to structure it where everyone could kind of control how it is used and how it is seen will open up new opportunities on existing platforms as well and our biggest thing is how do we make the hooks extremely easy so that anyone could jump in here and start doing it and then we want to be able to learn from how they are using it and how they are building it because that's where i think the fire really begins
0: give a a concrete example of that in terms of like where does the drop-off happen now like let's say i write an article you know it goes viral on i don't know Twitter, or like uh, or Facebook, or like, wh- where is the drop off really happening right now in terms of where people are losing from not securing their IP for for writers, and how might that be different in a poet world? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So, so there's a few scenarios. I mean, one scenario is people are always looking for contributors, right, or new content. So, let's say Forbes has a huge contributor network where they are constantly looking for new creators, right? And writers in different parts of the world. How do they vet those writers? How do they know those writers are actually submitting the content that they say they're submitting? How do they know that the content that they're submitting to publish, let's say on Forbes, hasn't already, like, already been published in the New York Times and elsewhere? There really aren't mechanisms for that currently right the mechanisms are we basically have a drop-off and we have a couple people like human people on the desk to try to review this information so in this case right and how these things change is what if you're able to kind of open up a contributor network where people have to create an identity right and that identity is tied to their work and whatever they submit And where they've submitted in the past, all of that history is somewhat transparent. And now they're not just creating content, right, and submitting it and looking for places like Forbes or elsewhere to kind of freelance and license it. But now all of a sudden, right, they're looking at a company like Forbes as the jump off, right, for them to start building credibility and reputation and content for this sort of licensing. So this could open up opportunities for how you embrace and look for creators, right? Say the post doesn't have a bureau in Syria and something happens in Syria and they need a photo journalist and editor on the ground, right? Or else they're going to have to license or contract that coverage from another media outlet. The process now is very, very like year-long vetting of making sure that the people say they are who they are and that they will be reliable and they will be there. Well, when you start building identity tied to reputation, right, now the post has the opportunity to reach out and kind of see through transparent means who this writer is, what they've created, are they there and are they reliable? So those are kind of real use cases today where we are having active discussions with um, people who are actually creating and the platforms you know, who are looking for these creators where they see huge opportunities for that to be able to ensure identity as it ties to reputation and be able to help build and grow together by connecting those two dots. The other thing, which is not necessarily something that we're able to solve today, but that we often think about is how can you protect, right? How information is used and where it goes and how are you able to keep right? A public or private ledger of information to kind of know where that information is being used. So if you have an image that is out there or text that is out there or something that maybe you said, okay, I'm okay licensing it to person A, but now person B is using and misusing it. What are the measures that can be built around there to not necessarily shut it down, but just start to monitor and create a better flow of information for how IP is being used and how IP is being managed. And all of these things, again, like when you boil it down and I definitely don't have to explain it to you and I definitely don't have to explain to the audience like what what blockchain and the value of token economics are against that. But when you think about IP, right, and you think about the opportunity to have information that is stored, right, and that cannot be manipulated tied to certain incentive mechanisms so that people are, Right, somewhat tied to what they say and what they do, then you really start to build a world right, and a creator economy where it becomes extremely expensive right, to lie and extremely cheap to tell the truth. And the values of being able to kind of tell the truth and overexpose your information really starts to kind of build this new layer of the web. So the core thing and the biggest change here is that and this is kind of going in a different direction, but this is where I think things really start to change is that the creator web, right. Was built off recency and relevancy. And that's basically how do I find something based on the time that it was created, right. Chronologically, or I want to see the most recent thing that was delivered about some subject and then relevancy, which is just verbatim, right. And, how we all search today when you go to Google or or Twitter or Facebook or any engine, right, that's going to render information that you are looking for, you want it to basically render exactly what you're writing when you write it. And what's happened when it comes to the creators is that creators have actually changed the way that they create based on the way that consumers discover. And that's a real problem, right? That's a real problem to the point where, When we were at the Huffington Post back in 2011, when Michael Jackson passed away, the headline was, Michael Jackson passes away due to drug overdose. Doctor investigated. And we changed the headline to Michael Jackson dead, which one isn't even grammatically correct. (laughs) But two (laughs) was just created because it was based on what we thought the consumers would be looking for. And that is such a disservice, right? That's a disservice for the creator who has intellectual IP that they want to deliver to their readers and their followers. And it's also a disservice to the consumer who who is looking for that creator or that deliverer to give them the information that they need, right? That's factual and um, honest and what they're looking for. And in the end, right, what we're missing is this reward system or this value system that's tied to reputation, right? How can we put value on people who are spending time, right, on creating the right information for the consumers? How can we start exposing, right, kind of like this web nutrition based on reputation so that when you are looking for information or sifting through it, You are now able to kind of get the ingredients behind which you consume and see, oh, who is the author of this and what are the sources that were used and where was this originally created and who's paying for this content and how much time did it take to create this, which may be interesting for certain consumers, but it will definitely be interesting for certain algorithms that are really looking to help identify information versus misinformation, And in the end, where I think this really becomes impactful, no matter what, is people, right? People will always smoke (laughs) cigarettes and people will always drink and and people will do whatever they want to do because people are free to make whatever decision they want and put whatever they want within their bodies. But there is value in exposing certain information for people that may be looking for deeper knowledge as to what is in a cigarette, right? Or what is in alcohol or what is in, you know, a Philly cheesesteak. And that is where I think this becomes extremely powerful no matter what, which is we're not necessarily saying we should be curators by using reputation and tell people what they should be seeing. I think that's why we're in this filter. Like, I think that's why the filter bubbles are swelling and growing more and more. But what we're saying is we're just exposing – on an even playing ground, the information behind the information. So if Alex Jones wants to make his authorship verifiable, he could and should, and that is true, right? He is the author of this Infowars video. And if he wants to expose his sources that he's using, which you know, may be completely ridiculous sources, then he can. And if he feels that that's beneficial for him to overexpose kind of what's going into his work, then he could go for it, right? And that may not matter to his users, but the overexposure of certain worker things that went into the Me Too investigations for the New York Times and the hours and the money and the work that went into that will go way farther when the Times is looking to show their value on society than anything else right? that is currently being done today that's aligned with certain efforts. So it's a huge thing. And like what I'm talking about, there's certain things that are six months down the road. There's certain things that are 10 years down the road. There's certain things that society may, may implode and, and like never care about this in general. But all of these things I think are real problems that we could start to look to solve with these sort of
0: technologies. So you just wrote this, we just touched on it a little bit, but you wrote this piece in Token Daily about reputation and identity can you unpack a little bit what you were trying to achieve in that piece, and, and for people who haven't read the piece, what what were your, your main points from it?
1: Yeah, so I tapped on it a little bit, but what what has really attracted me in general to this space again? Because I've, I mean, I have an interesting career in general. I really wasn't supposed to be where I was at all of my stops, and then I end up kind of like figuring it out and being able to push through and kind of lead that way. I mean, I literally went from kind of journalist to product lead, you know, to engineering, to marketing, and now, you know, just kind of running a blockchain company with no uh, prior experience, let's say, building blockchain companies, right? And to me, there's just something so obviously missing on the web and, you know, in society in general, and that's this notion of reputation. And reputation, as it applies to identity, right, is something that exists and has existed on the web before. And you've seen it exist when it comes to people creating things with links and how SEO kind of served as a curator of those links and allowed us to find certain things in Google and Microsoft and others, building algorithms around the information that you should find, right, based on a bunch of different signals. And and that was very reputation-based, but doesn't necessarily tie directly to identity, right? And can be misused the second kind of era of you know web reputation was really in social right and that was your ability to sign up on these platforms and distribute your content everywhere and build your own following and engage directly with communities which for better or worse kind of blew up in a way right when it comes to reputation and you see this with twitter And people not necessarily have to align with identity. And I hate the term, but fake news, right? And the spread of misinformation and the links that are most popular, right, on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere may not necessarily be the most reputable links, right? But again, to kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth, in both the first phase with SEO and the second phase with social, I don't necessarily think that it's the job of these platforms to be arbiters of the web. I think that they're working towards doing those things. And I think that we've seen a lot of mistakes come up, right? And and serious issues that have come out of those mistakes, but they weren't built, right, for defining reputation and being arbiters of certain information the way that we now in society are looking for. So the Token Daily article and what really kind of hit me and why I wanted to write about reputation is that everything that we are looking to solve as it applies to media, right, or optics today, directly ties back to this notion of how do I know, right, what I'm reading or watching or buying is what it's supposed to be. And not to get political, but We live in a world today where there is a massive spread of misinformation as a strategy, right? Where there's many people and, you know, the country is kind of divided on thoughts here, but there's many people that are frankly exhausted to sift through all of this information to find out exactly if it is the right information or not, because there's just so much, right? We're constantly being thrown different ideas and angles and optics of topics that, Yes, some people may take the time to read through it, and depending on where they subscribe or what mediums they use, may have the accessibility and opportunity to get to the bottom of certain things, but a majority of people don't, and, and they don't, frankly, because they just don't have time, right? There's not enough time in the day to go through everything that is out there and really find out what is real versus what is not, or I don't even like those terms, but like what is black versus white and uh, left versus right and so forth. So what I tried to hit on in the Token Daily article, and it's not super long, so anyone listening, I'd definitely say uh, to read it because it'll describe it better uh, than I could probably talk through right now. But the biggest thing is really recognizing that reputation doesn't have to be very cut and dry, right? It doesn't have to be or, right? It could be ends. And I think that that's where the exposure of this sort of information really starts to kind of change the way people think and really brings value to society so what do i mean by that when we look at seo and when we look at social and when we look at media companies right the biggest role is curators and it's people that we trust curating information that we should be reading and in the early days right to kind of go to the beginning of our conversation That is why you subscribed to a media company, either it was in your region and it was local or it was one that you trusted to deliver you that information. Now with social platforms and distribution, that information is totally commoditized and people are assuming, right? And again, not us, but there are people out there that are assuming that the same way that people used to curate their editorial page, right or their newspaper, is the same way that people are curating, right, their Facebook feed and their Twitter feed. And that's just not the case, right? And there is data and personalization and all of these factors tied to the algorithm that further feeds you what they think you want to see to the point where you just become put into a certain bubble, right? Whether, whatever bubble that may be. And what I think this next wave of reputation needs to be is that we really just need to expose kind of the gray area, right? Like the middle. How do we pull out all of the information that allows people to see deeper into what they're consuming or watching or reading that doesn't necessarily say what you're doing is right and what you're doing is wrong, but just gives more of a um, of a kind of detailed approach to knowing, right, what you are putting in your body. And the fun part about this, and and again, why decentralization matters, and I think why there was such good reception from it in general, is that we don't all agree, right, on what that should be. And we don't necessarily want other people to kind of dictate what that should be. However, What we are excited about and able to do is that if we could kind of seek providence and seek certain information, then we could just make better decisions, right? And when people who are creating this content, right, or creating this information, have their reputation directly tied to it, then they are held accountable, right, for certain things that are being said and certain things that are being done. And exposing of this information allows them to somewhat go deeper. And this just kind of really, really opens up an entirely new sort of space for people to just start thinking about, right, how they gauge information and where that information goes and how they curate and who they read and what they trust and all of kind of what we were talking about earlier, the economies behind media, like tipping and subscribing and purchasing, but really getting to expose a new layer, right, of information that hopefully, right, may not make everyone stop smoking, right, or stop drinking, but the people who were seeking for something new are now actually able to find it and better understand it than before where they were just being fed and delivered kind of the information that was already preset and preconceived for them, you know to be consuming.
0: Yeah. And what do you think are the um, the biggest bottlenecks right now to sort of uh, the vision you've outlined?
1: Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot. I mean, I think I think one thing that I see as it applies to the platforms and media in general and while it's not apples to apples, I think it's important to recognize is that the information age is kind of in like the Napster phase. A lot of people I talk to now don't remember what Napster is, but if anyone who does remember Napster, I think with Napster, it was in like, if you look back, you're like, well, Napster was great because it was free. Right. And people wanted free music. And if you remember Napster and, and, and the product, the product actually sucked. I mean, the, Like, there were so many artists, right, that I thought sang songs that they didn't sing because of the mislabeling, right, of Napster and how it was uploaded, and the quality of music was bad. And songs that were meant to be three minutes were cut off at like two minutes and 41 seconds. Like, the experience wasn't great, but Napster was great because it was really the only way to get that information and that music in your hands at that time. Now, we could have just stopped there and assumed that no one will ever pay for music again and no one cares about the quality of music. And even if a song is cut off, they don't care because it's free, but we didn't. Right. And I'm glad that we didn't because we actually created a better economy that is built around kind of reputation and trust and knowing that the artist that you're looking for actually created those songs and you're actually getting the full song and, While Spotify quality isn't the best, right? It's better than Napster. And you're willing to pay for that service because you're willing to pay for something verifiable and better and a service that you know, right? What you are getting is um, what you paid for and what you're looking for. We're kind of in that phase of thinking right now as it applies to information and misinformation in general, but especially media. And the biggest hurdle is that people are looking at the media economy right now and saying, people don't wanna pay for content, right? They're never gonna pay for journalism. People don't care about what is real and what's not, right? Like today there's conversations that fake news is just gonna exist and who cares? Cause the people who believe in fake news are always gonna believe in fake news and what's the worth. So when I talk about reputation, right? And this idea of exposing information and basically building like a nutritional label for the web, everyone loves it. But they're like, do people care? Will they care? Right? So that kind of slows things down in the sense that we're still working towards it. And a lot of people working in the open web are working with us and working towards it. But not every media creator or long tail creator is on board. And I think if you kind of associate it with what I was mentioning with Napster, what we'll see by exposing this sort of information and getting a lot of people to start working on it is that we will be building new tools, right? And new economies and new ways to not just pay for information, but start shifting people's perception of what they want and the services that they pay for in order to get that information. So that's kind of where we're at now, where People are still convinced that the information age or especially media companies in the media age is dead and and no one cares, right? Because people are just reading whatever they want to read and no one cares about the facts or that no one wants to pay for media or journalism because they just get it for free, right? But what really needs to happen is we need to spend some time and expose what makes this information premium And what we could do to help show that value in a meaningful way and then build the applications and the functions, right, that are going to deliver that to kind of take us from our Napster moment to our Spotify and beyond type moment, which I 100% believe is totally attainable because these are things that we need, right? And as a society, we cherish and we love and they're brands that we love and it's information that we need in order to keep a democracy <laughs> going, right? And and Facebook and Google and other platforms that are kind of struggling with these issues right now are also saying we need these things. So it's just going to take a lot of people to agree, which I would love to happen sooner rather than later, but it will take time to convince people. And that's kind of where we're at today.
0: And talk a little bit about how you see things playing out. Like if we're looking out you know, five years out, ten years out, are we going to see? And you look at the media players. Are you going to see a great consolidation? Are you going to like all these niche, you know, media sites? Like, will they will they be able to exist and and be profitable? Yeah. What you, or is it all going to be individual? Like, what are your thoughts on how how it's going to shake out? Yeah, it's a
1: great question. I think about this every single day because I'm sitting on both sides now. It's like <laughs> with a lot of the stuff that we're building at Poet, everyone's like, "Who are your media partners?" And I realize, wow, sometimes what I'm talking about is actually disintermediating the media companies. So that could be a huge reason why uh, all of the long-tail creators are on board for this, but you know, the media companies um, are somewhat nervous about it. But I think 100% you will see consolidation. What I think you'll really start to see, and my prediction is, and I'm using a lot of music metaphors today, I'm realizing, but similar to like the artist and the record label relationship, I think you'll start seeing from the writer or the producer and the media company relationship. Where right now, these media companies are struggling to get advertising dollars because there's just a lot of media companies out there for advertisers to choose from, and it's a data game. And now they're all running to subscriber dollars, but that'll be the same problem because subscribers only have so much money, right? So unless you massive bundle or consolidate, it just is not gonna be able to sustain everything. But I think what you'll start to see is that media companies will really start to understand and acknowledge what their future role is. And I think you're seeing this from new media companies like Brat and others where these media companies are not necessarily just trying to be the ones that hold the reputation, right, that are saying, hey, advertise with us because of our content or subscribe to us because of our content, but they're putting a lot of emphasis on the creators themselves and saying, we have this show and we have these creators and the advertisers will follow those creators because they'll want a direct one-to-one relationship as well as the consumers and people who are watching them. So in an extreme situation and what I think you'll start seeing like the Washington post start to acknowledge themselves as we are a media company But what we're really good at is getting great writers, distributing their content across all new platforms, helping them make money and helping them get exposure, right? Similar to how like record labels and management companies help with bookings and merch and distribution. And you'll start seeing, I think, advertisers and brands and subscribers wanting to be with the writers direct and following them in terms of like interoperability wherever they go. So again, this is probably a bad example, but like GE may love David Ferrenhold's writing for the Washington Post. And wherever David Ferrenhold is, GE is gonna wanna be. So it's not necessarily GE doing an ad buy with the Washington Post, but GE kind of doing more of like a sponsorship similar to influencer marketing or kind of what you've seen with like Kaepernick and Nike And that relationship is extremely powerful. And that's powerful for the media company to own that creator um, and distribute that creator. But that's also extremely powerful for the brand, right? To be able to have direct relationship and and see that direct value, kind of knowing who they're working with and who's representing. And that's extremely obvious, I think, on the subscriber level where uh, consumers, it's not like a media company, right? When they were a newspaper 30 years ago is not the same kind of behaviors as today, where you used to sit down at your table and read the paper front to back and spend an hour. Now, you barely go to a website. And if you go to the website, you read one, maybe two articles, you know, you're not kind of reading the entire Washington Post website and spending an hour there. So you're already seeing these things somewhat happening. And I think you'll see media consolidation, because the media role will kind of become that of you know, a management, right. And saying, you know, we have these writers, we have this content, but you will start seeing value go closer to the creator where, again, this is extreme, but when you go and see Drake, I mean, you don't necessarily know who Drake's label is. Right. And you don't say, wow, I love Drake because he's on Warner brothers. Right. Like, (laughs) so I think you'll start seeing that with some of these media companies where you're like, I love Liz Plank, right, from from Vox. And I watch Liz Plank. So as an advertiser, I want to advertise with Liz Plank. and as, And as a subscriber, I want to subscribe with Liz Plank. And the fact that she's with Vox is great. And Vox must be really taking care of her, right, and managing her career really well. But, like, my relationship is with the creator itself. And that's what I think will happen. And consolidation will happen that way. But if it all works out well, and I believe we need to kind of face it right now, then there will be more value put back into why people want to advertise and why people want to pay for these things because there will be an extreme kind of free agency type market around the creators themselves to be able to build reputation around and really start to redefine what media companies should be, which, frankly, we can't structure modern-day media companies the way they were 30, 20, 10, even five years ago, because we're moving so fast and the way that we get information is so different. So it's kind of this adopt, adapt, or die type thing where we can recognize where we're going and build the best sort of situations out of it to help manage it, because the role of media companies is real and extremely valuable. It's just acknowledging what it is now versus what it was five years ago and preparing yourself for that.
0: Yeah. One thing we haven't talked a ton about is the like big and like Facebook, Amazon, yeah, Apple, Google. I mean, is there a world in which they take way too way too much of this uh, of, of, the, of the media pie?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Or> any, <laughs> to be honest, yeah, any I more think, than they have, I think. Yeah, well, it's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, they will. It's so crazy because even there was an article. That was in Slate a few weeks ago. That was amazing. And it was about because now everyone is uh, all the publishers are going to Apple News because Apple News is apparently going to be building right, the new like, next relationship and value proposition for publishers on a platform. And the article pointed out that, and it was Slate, that an article on Slate that gets 50,000 page views makes more money for Slate than an article on Apple news that gets 6 million page views. And <laughs> that's crazy in general, Wow. Yeah. but what's more crazy is that it's self-inflicting for these publishers, right? So I've been going through this the past 10 years. When I was at the Huffington Post and the example I gave earlier, we were all about winning in SEO. We were all about winning in social. That's frankly how we grew so fast through network effects, and sold to AOL, right? And being one of the first and most major new digital media properties to sell. But it was all about giving it away, right? And then we built Rebel Mouse around that whole notion. And and at Rebel Mouse, we launched the Dodo and a lot of social viral sites because it wasn't about owning your IP. It was about delivering your IP and distributing it across the platforms and being where your consumers are. So publishers always opted in to do this because... This was the future, right? And even though we were giving more and more away, we were okay with it because that's what the consumers were and this was the future. When I was at the Washington Post, we made an announcement in Recode that we were going all in on Facebook Instant, right? Because the optics of doing that was innovation and value, even though when you think about it, that means you're giving all of your content, the data, the users, everything to Facebook. So what's amazing about this Slate article And to answer your question is, like, we're still doing it, right? Even though, like, the financials don't line up. 50,000 page views on a Slate article, over 6 million on a Slate article on Apple News makes less money. We still do it because of the optics, and we're still giving it away because I really believe that these media companies, one, don't want to acknowledge their role, and they should be confident in their role and confident in their IP. And I also think that there's this beat down notion of them saying, well, this is just the world as it is now. And why do we keep fighting it? So they keep kind of going back. And yes, the platforms change. And you saw this with Google Amp and Facebook Instant and Snapchat Discover and Apple News. And they always go all in and they pull back. And I think that they'll continue to do it, sadly. And, and the hold that the platforms have right now is very huge. And it's scary for publishers, but they keep doing it because there's a relevancy and there's also value in new audience, right? And reaching, I think they're called centennials now, right? On these different platforms. But what it's also doing in an interesting way is pushing towards this future that I was laying out for you. Because if you were looking at the media companies giving all of this information and creator IP over to the platforms... And you see how the platforms manage influencers, right, as a one-to-one relationship and advertise against those influencers and and pay against those influencers, then it is kind of being set up the way that we think it's going to be, where, yes, there is value for these media companies, but if they continue to kind of give this information and their content away to the platforms, then eventually their role needs to change. And identifying that role is important. But I do, think, I do think that it'll further um, extend. I do think that it's extremely dangerous, especially now I'm able to talk freely about it when you work at a media company. You don't necessarily feel that you could just scream from the rafters how you really feel. But I think in this case, what we see and what's been proven is that it is a real problem and bringing that back is valuable, but also really identifying what it is is valuable. And there is an importance in partnering with the platforms, but there's also an importance in owning right, your IP and your relationship and we've yet to find a balance and all you keep seeing is more and more and more going to the platforms and less coming back and being controlled and managed by the media companies themselves.
0: What do you think of the old adage of like Stuart Brand, I think like all information wants to be free and the idea, I guess corresponding idea that maybe some of this, you know, like journalism or music or something is like, I don't want to say like lost leaders for, for something else or it would just, come down to zero because there'll be so, so much of it. What do you, what do you say to that, that idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always challenge people that say the media model is dead. Like when people are like advertising and subscriptions are dead, I think that's bullshit. I think there's just too many media companies, right? So, and I think you've kind of seen that with what's happening with consolidation. And I think you've seen that with smaller media companies like Skift and Bustle and others that, that are doing just fine and operating beautifully because they're operating within the confines of their business and not giving too much away and also managing the relationships well. So I think that the models could still exist. I think that that age of over-information was extremely prominent You know, during the HuffPost era and when Business Insider was growing up and BuzzFeed was growing up. It was really about how quickly you could move to report on an article that was just reported right, and win in the page views and win in the ad dollars. Even like the New York Times Fred and Donald Trump tax expose that came out, it was, I think, the longest, if not one of the longest articles the New York Times ever wrote. And they actually TLDR'd their own article so that <laughs> it couldn't be like taken from one of the aggregators to do so. There, there is a legitimate fear, right, that, that people will not want to pay for this sort of information. And I think that that fear will continue if we don't really start acknowledging the reasons why they should. And to kind of go back with information wants to be free and the Napster Spotify example, right? You've seen businesses built out of these kind of dystopian environments where we didn't think we could come back. Now, there's a very strong argument that for the artists, Spotify is awful. (laughs) So like, it hasn't really fixed that problem. It's fixed the problem of The consumer is getting ultimate access, right, and a ton of information and premium information, but it's not necessarily extremely valuable for the artist unless the artists look at it as a way to sell concert tickets and merch and and so forth. So I think that it's a real concern. I think we'll see now more than ever how important information is and being able to discern from misinformation. And we see it in politics. Um, We're going to see it really, really, really bad with deepfakes. Right. Like when videos are being created and you can mimic the president or any figure whatsoever uh, to make it look and say whatever you want and have it completely be fake is a huge concern that people are getting on top of. And again, that's a huge kind of value for poet and provenance and, you know, knowing where information comes from. But now's the time for us if we firmly believe that, yes, information should be free, but you want to be able to fund, right, and enable the informers to be able to do their job, like to really kind of work through and think through what that model is. Because like, there's models out there, like people like Craig Newmark, who is donating, right, and, and kind of um, positioning and posturing up media companies that have specific focuses, you know, you have Jeff Bezos, right, which I was a part of, kind of that amazing opportunity, which was, him coming in and, you know, giving the Washington Post the chance, right, to rebuild and prove themselves, which they have. And you see Mark Benioff and actually the Benioffs uh, together buying time, right, and seeing the value there and giving that again. So the future may mean billionaires. <laughs> the future may mean donations. I think people will always want information, but it's kind of on us to figure out what that model is and to also have our eyes open and recognize what that will be right we have to kind of be honest with where we are and where we're going and these kind of short-term wins and sprints that we did in media um, whether that's partnering with the platforms or becoming aggregators or gaming seo they're good for a little bit but then they end up failing and they're doing a lot more harm than good so uh, we just need to be aware and cognizant but it's going to take Frankly, the entire world to figure it out and work together to build a real solution here.
0: Totally. Maybe the last question: Can you share any thoughts you have on like going back to identity and reputation as it relates to like pseudonymous or you know, pseudo anonymity as relate like future like people have multiple identities like not anonymity? Like, what do you think there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love when people talk about blockchain and crypto as a way to be safe against those sort of things. I mean, I think one of the, like, and it, and it's not something that I'm proud to talk about, but one of the biggest values, right, for pseudo anonymity or just anonymity in general as it applies to blockchain and crypto is people like Alex Jones, right, who is now banned from Twitter and Facebook and all the social platforms, banned from PayPal, right, that's no longer accepting payments to his site can now very easily and openly, right, have a platform that not just enables him to be able to fund the work that he's doing, but also have people anonymously fund the work that he's doing. Because there are probably many people out there that while they may not want their neighbors, right, to know that they watch or want to contribute to InfoWars, but frankly that they want to keep it going, now have the opportunity to do so without any retribution, right? Or, or any backlash. So what's crazy to understand, and again, like, I think that these are real things and real opportunities that can be used for good, and real opportunities that can be used for value. But we should also be aware that these are real use cases that can be used today, that also contribute to that side of thing as well. And that is very real, right? And that is real when you think of, people who may want certain information from lists that may be questionable information, right? That they are now able to contribute or curate to those lists and may not necessarily have to put their face on it. So when we talk about ID and reputation, I think there's the ways that I was kind of describing it throughout this call, which is, hey, here's a great world where creators could tie their identification with the work that they're doing And there could be openness on the web and people will know the information that they want and they'll know that it could be truthful, right, or false or depending on their preference, whatever they want. There's more exposure, right, for them to be able to better understand what they are consuming. But don't forget that that works on both sides. Right. And and that basically opens up the opportunity for people to misuse. Right. And and for people to maybe be pseudo anonymous or use other names or or be able to do things now. We're structuring the protocol and the platform in a way to go back to like the ingredients so that people could openly see right who who are validating these certain claims and who are following, and you can basically tie it down and see like who is paying for these things and what have they paid for before, or the people that are basically making certain validations on verifiable claims around sources, well, are these people reputable right in the sense of how they feel? reputation works or are they non-reputable so it kind of takes work from the consumer but by all means this is not kind of a beautiful oasis <laughs> that is going to change the way that we we work and think i mean i think there's opportunity for you know the facebooks and the googles and others who have huge platforms to start using this sort of information to help better their platforms because those platforms are centralized so they could take kind of the best information and the best value of things that they see from Poet and um, other information centers and use those. But then there's people who could start propping up and creating new things that that completely contradict right, what we would consider as a healthy ecosystem for their kind of pseudo ecosystems. And that is a reality and something that we're very aware of, and I think many in the space are aware of, but that's also kind of the direction that we're going. So, the most successful way to approach that isn't necessarily fighting it hand and fist. It's understanding it. Right. And really trying to figure out how best to kind of be aware of it and expose that sort of information so that we could just better control and manage the world that we're living in.
0: I, uh, I think that's a good place to, good place to close. Jared, can you, uh, where can people find you online and learn more about poet and any plugs for what's to come?
1: Yeah. I'm at, at Jared Dicker, so at J-A-R-R-O-D-D-I-C-K-E-R on Twitter, same name on Medium. You can email me directly, jared at poet, P-O dot E-T. And we have a ton of things um, rolling out, you know, especially as it pertains to the protocol. We're releasing scaling updates. We're releasing new plug updates. We have a mainnet launch in two weeks, two or three weeks. Don't quote me on that. The engineering team will kill me, but we're <laughs> we're dangerously close uh, to that. And again, the biggest goal uh, with what we're doing here is really being able to open up access to the verifiable web and get everyone, no matter what they do or where they are, to start getting to own their IP, figure out how best to uh, use and leverage their assets and kind of think about what a better web would look like and have Poet be a component of that brain power. So please reach out and would love to hear from anyone and everyone.
0: Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Jarrett. Have a a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, sir.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash networkcatalyst.